Before we dive into God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us and in your generosity and your kindness and your wisdom, having what you've said recorded in this book. I pray by the Spirit, you would um, create in us an, an awe and appreciation that through all the clutter and competing claims of truth and tips and ideas that we have in this world, through all of that, you give us your word. So I pray that as we come to your word, that, 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 that we would come to it not like any other book. It's, it's, not, it's not even the best of books. It's not just ink on a page, but it's your living and active word, able to challenge us, able to refine us, able to revive us, and, and as this text does, able to, to put in us and instill in us an unflappable hope, an unwavering joy. We can understand the text, we can get the details, we can define the terms, but we can't really believe it apart from the work of your spirit. And so would you, by the work of the spirit, allow these truths to go deep into our hearts, that they might change the way we live, the way we think, the way we act, and the way we live them. Above all things, and this is true every week as we gather, this is true every day, we don't, we don't need more to-dos, we don't need more tips and strategies on, on, on how to mend relationships. Those are all things that you offer us and give us and we're grateful for them. But what we need most is to, to leave this place more impressed with Jesus Christ. And so would you make them loud in our songs, in our conversations, in our prayers, in the sermon, and, and throughout this coming week until we get to gather again as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Started practice. Uh, started doing this recently. Um, something I haven't really done before, where I've been listening to audio books while I, while I run. And I picked up uh, a book recently by uh, a pastor and an author named Eugene Peterson. Um, pastor for a really long time. Has written a ton of books. He's he's most well known for um, what he would call. He wouldn't call it. I think a Bible translation as much as like a amplification of the Bible called. The message. Many people have read the, the message, and I've been listening to this biography, and, and there's just some great things that, that have stood out. And one of the things that really endeared um, Eugene Peterson to my heart was the story I heard about his interaction with a, uh, someone named Bono. Have you heard of Bono? And so you might have heard of Peterson, but you probably heard of Bono. You know, he's been a, been a world-famous musician for decade after decade after decade, and there's, he was, uh, Eugene Peterson was teaching up in uh, uh, Canada up in Vancouver at Regent College, and a student came and, and had this little clip on their phone of Bono talking about the message, talking about this Bible translation, and, and just like going on about how this, this is really speaking to his heart and really singing to it. It's just really amazing. And then the story goes that, that Bono actually reached out to try to schedule a meeting with Eugene Peterson, and he turned it down. And they said, but it's Bono. He said, yeah, but I'm working on Isaiah. And I love that it's just like, he's like, it's Bono. Yeah, but it's God's word. And I just, and it's just like there, I was like, it doesn't matter what else he says. That part won me over. So anyway, so I'm listening to this biography on Eugene Peterson, and it's going through his whole life, and this is back in 1953, and he's listening to a sermon. He's living in New York City by George Buttrick. And the sermon title was, He Review, Refused to Be King. And I'm running down U Street, and, and I just had to stop because I was so struck by this line. So what Buttrick said, if we are ever to crown Jesus as king of our hearts, 
It will happen among confession and tears and great laughter. Those first two words probably, if you're a follower of Christ, they probably make sense with confession and tears. If Jesus is going to become our king and our savior, we're going to be confronted with who he is. We're going to be so impressed with who he is, and we're going to see ourselves and know that we fall short, and we're going to confess our need for him. We're going to confess our sins to him, and there's probably going to be tears of sorrow and remorse and gratitude. But those last two words really struck me. Great laughter. One of the things it reminded me of is we're in this Advent season leading up to the birth of Christ, and the theme today of joy is that Christianity, among many things, is a joyful religion. Now, I say this on the front end, the joy that we have, it's not, it's, it's not glib. It doesn't always mean smiling and laughing. It often can result in that. But biblical joy, Christian joy, is something different. It's durable. It's not contingent upon current circumstances. It's founded on something more sure. It's got a a different source. And so what we're going to look at today as it relates to joy are just two things. Where does true joy, durable joy come from? And what does true joy or durable joy produce? If you're able, would would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Psalm 98. It's helpful to know this. Um, the Psalms in the Bible were the prayer books of God's people, and they were often sung in, in congregational settings, even like this. Well, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand, his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Feel free to grab a seat. See the word sing and song a number of times in this text. Um, I really resonate with the text like this. If you lived in the Barrett household, you would be living in an ongoing musical. So our home is, is full of, of song. I'm constantly playing music, but mostly I'm just singing. I would say half of the things that I say to my wife or my kids are actually in song. I just like to make up songs, and I love doing it. I don't know if they love it as much, but they love me, so they put up with it. So Judson, my youngest son, he came down to the kitchen yesterday morning. It was about 7 a.m. He had an early soccer game, and he walks into the kitchen, and he's rubbing the sleep from his eyes. And I'm like, oh, it's my son, my wonderful son. Don't run. You know, and it's just like... And I just grab him. And he says, ah, oh, dad. And my oldest daughter, we flew her home from college yesterday. And I come upstairs, and she walks in, and I see her. And I said, you know it's coming. And I go over, and I hug her. And I just start to sway, and I start to sing for about 18 minutes. 
just kept going. I love to I love just I love to sing when my kids are around and when my wife is around. And here's why I do this: my kids they make me happy. They just bring me a lot of joy. Singing is my joyful response to something good, and that's what's going on in this text. It's a joyful response to something good. I read this article out of Table Talk, uh, kind of a Bible um, devotional magazine, and it was an article called What is True Joy? And the author's main point was this, is joy is always responsive. It's responsive to something good. And then the author made uh, two really, I think, key insights and say, joy is often responsive to something that is near, something that you can feel, you can see it, something good right around you. But joy is also often something in response to something that's far off. It's something way out there. Both those insights are really, really helpful. Give you an illustration. You have the joy of finding out you're pregnant. Something good. It brings excitement. You text people, you call people. You, 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 you let them know. But it's something far off. You have the joy of when that child is born and you're, you're holding that child and there's this joy in your arms. It's joy that's near. And here's why this is massive. When your heart gets tuned to see joy that is both near but really joy that is far off, joy that is outside of your present circumstances, joy that transcends the things that are around you, you get something durable and lasting. Let me give you a monster line that's going to show up a few different times in this text by Melissa Kruger. She says this, present joy is rooted in past truth and future hope. Present joy, what you feel right now, it's built on what's happened and true and good in the past is it looks forward to what's true and good in the future that you do not yet have. And that's exactly what's happening in this text. And in verse one, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. It's saying, look back, see, see what he has done. And then it ends with, look forward. And in verse nine, before the Lord, for he comes. This is gonna happen to judge the earth, to, to bring righteousness and equity and fairness to this world. It's, it's something that you're looking forward to. We're looking back and we're looking forward. There's past truth and future hope. And what happens, we have this joyful response for what God has done and what God promises to do right here in the presence. And what we see in Psalm 98 is this invitation to sing. And then it revisits that actually in verse four. So oh, sing to the Lord a new song, verse one. And then in verse four, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth break forth into joyous song and sing. And right between it, it's telling us why. All the verses that come in between it are actually telling us why. And it's trying to get us to see them, to look at them. And we actually have that word in verse three, see. And then we have it in, 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 in chapter two, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight. And so the point of a psalm like this is to try to get something true about God in front of our eyes that we might see what he's done and what he promises to do that right now in the present moment we might have joy. In this text, 
we'll look at two different things to see. We see him save, and we see his steadfast love. We look at verses two and three, what we see is him save, we see his steadfast love. The word salvation is a big word in this psalm. It shows up in verse one, it shows up in verse two, it shows up in verse three, and it's God has worked salvation, verse one, God has revealed salvation, verse two, God has shown it to the ends of the earth, verse three. This psalm is a response to God's marvelous intervention to save his people. See his wonderful works. That's what this song is talking about, how God shows up to deliver his people. And that's a theme all throughout the Bible of how God shows up to see the salvation that he works by his right arm, that he's the one that did it, not us. We see this um, throughout the Bible in, in the book of Exodus, the story of how God's people were enslaved to a global superpower. And God came in and intervened he, he, with, with a strong and mighty arm, with compassion and tender greatness to deliver his people, and he brings them out of slavery, and he brings them into the wilderness, and he parts the sea, and he leads them across, and he shields them with the pillar of cloud and fire, and there's all these stories, but there's this really beautiful uh, chapter in, in chapter 14, this really beautiful verse that talks about how God is the one that has done this. In Exodus 14, it says this, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This psalm was likely written at the end of what was known as the Babylonian exile. God's people had a place, had a land, and... Uh, uh, the Babylonian Empire came in and ransacked their land and drug them off into captivity into Babylon. And God, again, he intervened. He came and he brought salvation. And when they came back, they, they wrote this psalm. See the marvelous things that he's done. Let's see the salvation that he brings. Those past interventions, though, what they do is they point forward to a more glorious one. When Jesus would bring a greater salvation with a greater scope. This is where the, the hymn writer, Isaac Watts, took this, actually. The, the, Isaac Watts wrote what is one of his most well-known hymns, Joy to the World. We sing it almost every year around Christmas time, been singing it for 300 years. I would suggest to you that if you want to study Psalm 98, probably the best thing that you can do is actually just go sing the song, Joy to the World. You can go read all the commentaries, you can do all the background, but, but Isaac Watts, what he did is he sat with this psalm and he just reflected on it. What came out of that was the song, Joy to the world. He stared at this text, and one of the things that came out was this, a line like this, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. This Psalm 98 points back to military victory over the nations, but it points forward to Jesus' victory over all the great things that attack us, of Satan, sin, and death. And here's the point of this. It's what he's done, not what you do and not what I do. It says, see the salvation that he has worked. Not how we've earned and not how we've climbed and not how we've aspired and not how we've built ourselves, not how we've cleaned up our lives and then God accepts us. It's the salvation that he has brought to us. That's the story of Christmas. That's why this is such good news of great joy. It's something that he has done that you couldn't and I didn't. As the text says, his right hand, his holy arm have worked salvation. Try to make this land. Let's talk about Santa. Um, 
All right, don't get mad. This is always this precarious moment every year. I, I, we're going to talk Santa because I think it's a very helpful way of understanding this. Now, I'll say this on the front end. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to dog on Santa. My grandma was one of my favorite people in the world. If you've been around this church for any of my time, you know that I adored my grandma, and she loved Santa. She, she would knit. So the, the, my, my, all my uncles, they all have Santa stockings that she knit when they were born. When I was born, I got a Robbie Santa stockings, Robbie across the top. When I got married to my wife, knit a stocking. When my kids were born, my grandma knit. And when she passed away, they passed down the template to knit the Santa stockings. They got Santa ornaments. I think we got like Santa soap and Santa hand towels. So I'm not ripping Santa. I'm saying Santa is, is wonderful, except this. The naughty and niceless is not wonderful. <laughs> There's something that happens even within a joy-filled, grace-saturated faith. It's a moral performance seeps in so easily. Let's look at the theme song of Santa. You better watch out. <laughs> it's like you just think the lights are going to go down. It's like, it's like a preview in the, in the movie theater. <laughs> this must be a thriller. <laughs> Imagine a parent looking at you, you better not cry better not pout. Well, I'm telling you, why? Why? <laughs> What's going to happen? Like, Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> it's like, please no. He's making a list. Oh, he's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. And the next part's just creepy. Let's just be honest. I mean, it's funny when you really, you pull it out and you look at it and you go, why have we been singing this all these years? He sees you when you're sleeping. Oh, he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. It just, he knows if you've been bad or good. And then do you know the punchline? What's the next line? So be good for, yeah. Oh, you better, hey. And we sing it so happy, right? It's so happy. It's traumatizing. It's traumatizing. It is so unchristian. It's so sub-biblical. You know, what's amazing is God does see us. He sees every aspect. He, he sees when we lay down and when we get up. He takes notice of everything we've done, everything we've thought. But he doesn't operate on the, the naughty and nice list. See, the story of Christianity is not that God would come and do good things for good people, but that he would do the greatest thing for the worst of people. Through his mighty arm, he brings salvation. He says, I want you to see that. And what that's going to do is bring joy because it's going to turn the pressure down. It's going to take the pressure off. It's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's not going to be about your track record and your trophies and your accomplishment, but the grace of God who through Christ Jesus did all the things that you were called to do and didn't. You can pout. You can pout. You can cry, you can struggle, you can sin, you can fail, you can have bad days, but in Christ you're safe, and in Christ you're loved, 
Like that, these two pairings that, that we see that break forth in song as we see the salvation that he has worked out. And then this beautiful phrase in verse 3, and he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. Isaac Watts in the last verse of Joy of the World, I believe was looking at that when he wrote this line, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness, and then listen to this phrase, and the wonders of his love. We get, we get our eyes fixed on this one that loves like this, this beautiful phrase, steadfast love. It uh, comes from the Hebrew word hesed. It's a really beautiful word that gets translated steadfast love. R.C. Sproul, talking about that word, says this. He says, there may be no more significant Old Testament description of how God relates to his people than this Hebrew word, hesed. I argue that the best translation of this term would be loyal love. God loves his people genuinely, immutably, loyally. Listen to this phrase. God is for his people and will never cease to be for them. Boy, that'll bring some joy. No matter what you do, in Christ, his commitment to you, he has loyal love. It's unbreakable. You cannot, there's a beautiful song called Hesed, and there's this punchline that says, you cannot break his love. We see this sometimes, the way a child might look at his mom and say, I hate you. And the mom says, I love you. Or between spouses, as one spouse sins against the other and says, I did it again. And that, 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 that husband looks right into his wife's eyes and says, I'm still not leaving. That's a loyal love. We see it most gloriously, though. Those are all just little echoes and shadows and appetizers of the steadfast love of God who gave his son to be born in a manger and then go to a cross. And one of the places, if you want to see the loyal love of God, the stick to itness love of God, the unbreakable love of God, you look to the cross and you see a Savior on the cross while people are taunting and cursing him. Oh, Jesus, you, you can save others. You can't save yourself. You know what? Get off the cross, and then we'll follow you. And what did Jesus do? He stays. He doesn't walk away. It is loyal love. It is steadfast and unwavering. Present joy looks back on that. Looks back on what God has done. Looks back on what God has delivered, that, that it, is, it is gracious love, and it is loyal love, and it is unwavering love, and it is unfading love, and in the present moment, no matter where you find yourself and what you've done or what you've failed to do, what you're proud of and what you're disappointed in, in Christ, you are loved. And what it does is it erupts in singing. That's where verse 4 goes. It says, see all this stuff, and then break forth, rejoice, rejoice. Um, if you're a Hawks fan, if you're a Seahawks fan, this has not been a year of rejoicing. This has been a fairly terrible, frustrating year, way more sorrow than joy. And so my Christmas gift to you is I wanted to remind you of one of the most iconic moments that brought the most intense joy in the history of the Seahawks. So we'll put this video up on the screen. Crowd silent now, as opposed to when the Saints have the ball. Oh, look at this run! What a run! Marshawn Lynch! Still on his feet. His blockers now. Oh, he's, he's dancing his way. Uh, ah! Right? 67 yards. Broke nine tackles. 
nine tackles, so you can turn it off, Isaac. This is just this absolute That's as good as it. And here's why I bring this up. That was such a momentous moment. That stadium erupted the 12th man, the fans, with so much noise, so much rejoicing, they caused an earthquake. Did you already know that? You knew this, or you did? Yes, they did. 1.0 on the Richter scale. One they cheered so loudly with what they just saw because they were so amazed by it. Oh, if we could see the one we're actually worshiping. If we could see his steadfast love. If we could see the salvation, if we could look at him. Oh, the awe, the reverence, the rejoicing, the splendor, the shouting, the bowing. That's what this text is saying. See these marvelous things that he's done and then make a joyful noise to him. Bring your cymbals and bring your trumpets. Those are symbols of victory. Bring, bring the horns. Cheer. The way Mike Cosper says it, it says, throughout history... Worship has been a wonder-filled response to the God who made a way to rescue us. Just to unpack that, when you use that word worship, it, it doesn't equal just singing. Singing is an aspect of worship, but, the, but all of life gets to be worship as you stand before the sun coming up, just stunned by the God who the highest heavens cannot contain who created that. Where you wake up and take a breath, and while you slept, he sustained you where you gather with friends and enjoy good laughter and good food. All of these things can erupt in worship, but ultimately on the God who made a way to save us, to bring us back. But one of the things that it does do is it can cause us to sing. That's why we sing every week as a community. That's why God's people are a singing people. And, and I want to talk about singing for a minute. I get it. It seems kind of weird. Like culturally, unless you were really into choirs or you're in a band, it seems kind of, kind of off that you would gather. I mean, where else in culture do you gather into a room to sing with people that maybe some you know very well, some you don't know? You, you, you come and you gather and you listen to someone talk for a while. You come and you, you maybe recite creeds together. You, I mean, it's just a kind, of a kind of a strange thing that this has to be one of the most countercultural things that you can do in our culture is to gather in a place with some people you know, some people you don't, to say the same things, to, to, to chant the same things, to sing the same things, to listen to someone speak, and then it dawned on me this actually happens in our culture all the time, particularly around the globe and increasingly so in America, but, but it does happen, and one of the places that it happens is in God's most beloved sport, soccer. So somewhere it happens, it's soccer or as it's rightfully called football. So in football, think about it, the stadium. It's like the sanctuary. If you go to the top flight leagues around the world, stadium is a sanctuary. And no matter what the weather is, 40,000 people will brave 35 degrees in rain or 3 degrees Celsius in England. They'll adorn themselves with the vestments of their religion wearing the colors in the crest to signal to everyone their allegiance. They'll have a fellowship time. They'll show up at the seats and they'll hug and high five the people that have had these spots and locations for generations. And then they'll welcome in hospitality those that are new to the gathering. They have a version of communion 
beer and hot dogs. It's a very subpar version, but they will feast together. They'll listen to a sermon. It's the commentator, the announcer giving the play-by-play, exegeting the game, and then bringing that to bear upon the hearts of the congregation, and they will sing. If you've ever watched it, it is, a, it is people singing and chanting. They are, they are retelling the history of their club, and they are inspiring one another with hope that they might have victory. That all might seem a little goofy, but I don't think it is, actually. And I'm hard-pressed to think of a better contemporary illustration for us to look at to inspire our worship. This isn't to rip sports. It's to say the fervor, the joy, the energy, the devotion that happens to a club. Oh, what if we saw Christ as he is? What colors would we fly? What songs would we sing? What would happen to our hearts? How might they soar? We see and we sing. We also sing, though, so that others can see. And this text is this back and forth. That it wasn't just that God did this for Israel, for his people, but he did this that the nations might see that God would work salvation, that that God's people would sing and celebrate that and point to that and live with joy before that so that the world could look in and say, oh, I want that. Oh, I want that too. Now, something that's that's really important to get from this text is, is to not disconnect it from the lives of the people when it was written. They had reasons for sorrow and sighing. They did. We do but they're also invited to sing because of what God had done. And what would that look like to be that kind of people in a world that's anxious and worried and nervous and angry and sad? To be a singing people, to be a rejoicing people before what God has done as we see the salvation that he's worked, we see his steadfast love lived out in Christ. What might that look like for us to offer that to the world? Um, I came across a study this last week by uh, Gallup. They've been doing this for about two decades, doing a, doing a poll to uh, see the kind of mental health of American adults from excellent down to poor. And they did the study again last year, and, and I'm sure you can imagine how some of it came out. But one of the insights that they, that they saw with this, um, there's really a number of interesting observations, but, but here's one that really stood out. Frequency of church attendance has a major impact on your health. And you're like, yes, you're saying that because you're here every week. And so, you know, you have, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just I'm giving you the study. This was, this was done by people that don't have a faith background. Um, but this is what they said, that, that the amount of uh, frequency really has an impact. That those that, that never or seldom attend a religious gathering in 2020, they had a 13% drop in the quality of their mental health across the board. People that came about once a month, had a 12% drop in their mental health. Went on with this and says, the only demographic subgroup in the study that didn't report a decline were those that attended services weekly. And I would add, there's probably a footnote, and those that volunteer on Christmas Eve to help in RK, (laughs) they are joyful. (laughs) They saw an increase. And I I was kind of trying to figure out, like, why is that? And I, I just posit an idea. I, I can't verify this. Here's what I think it is. I think it gets the frequency and focus on God that much more brilliant. 
See, when you're gathered together, that's what you're doing. You're, we're singing the songs. We're retelling the truth of God. We're retelling of his salvation and his steadfast love. And you're not just doing it by yourself. You're getting to piggyback off of everyone around you that's doing it. You might not feel what you're singing, but the person next to you might. And that has a tendency to rub off that joy is an evangelistic tool to say, oh, God, is good. You got to get in on that. My son Judson, my youngest son, he is a super fan of the Tottenham Hotspurs, a club, soccer club in the, the north of, of London. He will set his alarm clock. If they have a 4.30 a.m. game, he is up. He'll set his, he won't wake up for that. He'll wake up for that. He's up at 4.30. He is wearing the gear. He, he knows the history of the club. He, 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 he knows the starting lineups. He knows who's on the bench. He, he knows the formations. He knows what they should do to modify, and he sings the songs. He walks around the house singing, oh, when the spurs go marching in, and he's singing it. And then I find myself singing it. He's evangelizing me to love that club. I love how Stephen Colbert says, he says, joy is the most infallible sign of the existence of God. What a great line. And we get it because we look back and we look forward. But what that does in the present moment, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what things look like, we have a durable joy. A durable joy. Joy comes from the source of what God has done. Joy produces a response back to him in singing and joy and worship. It does one more thing, though. There's joy here to the world, joy from the world, but there's joy that's wider than the world in this text. One of my favorite parts of Joy to the world, to the, the, the hymn, Joy to the World, is from verses 7 and 8. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Clapping rivers and singing hills. This isn't just talking about the people of God rejoicing. It's actually talking about all of creation. It's this beautiful picture of God redeeming and reweaving and remaking all of creation. And it, it, this is the part of Psalm 98 that Isaac Watts wrote, verse 3, which oftentimes doesn't get sung. And I think it's like got to be the best verse. From Joy of the World, he says this, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found saying that when Jesus and the work that he did is to renew, to remake this creation. Watts is saying that salvation in Jesus, it, brings, it, it goes way beyond the forgiveness of sins. If that, it's not a small thing. It does more than reconcile us back to God. It is as wide as the world. It's as wide as the world. It includes backaches. It includes scraped knees. It includes earaches. It includes political corruption and division. It includes raining in the clouds that there wouldn't be torrential downpours and flooding. It includes reharnessing the winds that there might not be tornadoes that rip through people's lives and their homes. See, what Christ is coming to do is to replace famine with feasting and loneliness with community and division with reconciliation, to do away with injustices, to do away with racism, to do away with hatred, 
to do away with the animosities that happen between humans and creation. He's coming to weave it all together that the hills might sing. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. I wonder how that line lands on you. It, for me, it's interesting because I, I know that's what it says, but I look around the world, it sure feels like sins and sorrows still grow and things are still difficult and thorns and thistles are there. This world is a real mixed bag of good things and hard things. I love how Alyssa Pobleta says it. She says it like this. She says, the world is not sin-free. The world is not devoid of sorrow. And then listen to this, not yet. Oh, that's a good phrase. How honest and how hopeful. The things we sing in joy to the world, the things this text talks about, that the hills will rejoice, that the, the rivers will shout, that all the creatures in it will sing to the king. It doesn't feel like that's happening, but she says, not yet, which means it's coming. Knowing a little bit of history of joy to the world, very brief, very brief, might actually help you with this. Do you know that one of the number one songs we sing for Christmas was not written as a Christmas song? Isaac Watts didn't read, write Joy to the World to talk about the birth of Christ. Do you know why he actually wrote it? To talk about the return of Christ. It's totally appropriate to sing at Christmas because you can't have his return if you didn't have his birth. But when he wrote this, see, he looked at this text and said, let's look back on what God has done, but we gotta look forward to what he's doing in Christ and what it says. And when Jesus returns, sorrows and sin will cease. And the curse will be reversed. The things that got broken way in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 when we estranged ourselves from God and we broke creation, when Christ returns, that his grace, his might, his, his, his love, his intervention will mend this world and the joy will be indescribable. And we get to hold it by this not yet, this word yet. We can live now because we look back at the truth of what he's done with hope and what he's gonna do and it gives joy right now. I love how Melissa Kruger says it. The bedrock of our rejoicing isn't the goodness of our day, but the goodness of our God. And what Psalm 98 tells us is that God is really good and really great. See his salvation. Come and see his steadfast love and sing. Let's pray. Spirit, might you show off the truths that we've talked about today, the ones that maybe we knew coming in, the ones that you're flooding our hearts and imaginations with, that you might give us joy. Oh, what a wonderful word and what a wonderful thing to experience. We're so grateful that in Christ, it's, it's not tethered to what we currently are going through. We are so grateful for the moments of rejoicing when, when joy is near to us. But help us to be grateful that we can have joy now, even when it's far off. Let the bedrock of our rejoicing not be the goodness of what's going on in front of us, but the greatness, the graciousness, the goodness, and the gloriousness of our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.